in 1904, the young Upton Sinclair made his way through Chicago's packing town. It was a sprawling district on the city's south side and home to some of the largest slaughterhouses in the world. In short, it was awful. Windowless factories loomed against the gray sky, their smokestacks puffing ominously. All the while, a foul odor filled the air, the metallic smell of blood mixed with the sourness of cow dung. There was no escaping the stench of death. Sinclair shivered, both from the cold and from the misery that hung over the place. He pulled up his coat collar and kept his head down. Soon, he entered one of the buildings and pulled out a time card. After shuffling in line with the other workers and punching in, he began his shift. He stood at one of the many assembly lines where beef carcasses were processed. What he saw made his stomach churn. Slabs of meat laid in piles on the dirty ground while rats scurried about. Meanwhile, workers sloshed around in puddles of blood and offal. Mentally, Sinclair took note of all these details, though he kept them to himself. All around, company spies kept a watchful eye on things. The meatpacking industry paid them to make sure word about the conditions in the plants didn't get out to the public. But this didn't matter to Sinclair. After all, he was just posing as a worker. In reality, he was a journalist. He was writing a tell-all book about how food made it onto our dinner tables. And it was anything but palatable. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, also known as the FDA. As a relatively new institution, the FDA's purview has changed dramatically over the years. Today, its role is to make sure that the products we consume are safe. But historically, that wasn't exactly the case. In this episode, we'll cover why the FDA exists by exploring the modern history of food production in the United States. We'll also discuss how the fight to get basic regulations was long, hard, and filled with tragedy. Next time, we'll look at the FDA as we know it today. We'll discuss which industries try to convince the agency to approve products that could be dangerous to our health, from high fructose corn syrup to opioids. And we'll ask whether it does enough to protect consumers from harmful foods and drugs. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. 
and through therapy was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Nowadays, most people are familiar with the term FDA approval. Even if you're not exactly sure what it means, you might be aware that the FDA is a federal agency that ensures food and drugs are safe. And perhaps, like so many of us, you take for granted that the products you buy in grocery stores don't contain harmful substances. But once upon a time, there was no Food and Drug Administration. In fact, the idea that the government should even attempt to regulate what people consumed seemed outlandish. In order to understand why an institution like the FDA exists, we need to go back to the 19th century. Before the Industrial Revolution, most food was produced locally. Refrigeration was still in its early phases, so it wasn't possible to transport food long distances before it rotted. Instead, towns had their own butchers and smokehouses to provide fresh fare. Even cities had neighborhood slaughterhouses. It wasn't unusual to see cows, pigs, or sheep shuffling down busy streets. But in the latter half of the century, that all changed. Society became more urban, with much of the population moving to cities. Companies saw a lucrative opportunity to feed these city dwellers with cheap, convenient, and mostly canned foods. This meant food could be transported and sold in stores nationwide. Before long, meatpackers realized that they could make even more money by consolidating their plants. So, the biggest corporations bought out all of the local competition until there were only four major packing houses left. These companies became known as the Beef Trust. This group essentially functioned like a single entity, and they had a chokehold on the meat industry. The Beef Trust worked together to fix prices and divide up the market between them. 
Soon, they became the sole providers of processed meat for the entire country. To feed the over 30 million people living in the country at the time, the Beef Trust set up their empire in the Midwest. Cattle grazed out on the Great Plains before the cows were shipped out on boxcars. The 1860s saw an unprecedented boom in slaughterhouses in places like Omaha, Kansas City, and of course, Chicago. There, the cows awaited death and processing in Packingtown, the nickname for the stockyards on the city's south side. It was over 320 acres of narrow, open-air cattle pens as far as the eye could see. Each housed about a dozen cattle crammed in like sardines. Then the cows were sent to the slaughterhouses. Inside these factories, low-wage workers operated on assembly lines, where each employee performed a single tedious function over and over and over again. It was soul-crushing, mind-numbing work, but the new system churned out colossal quantities of beef. While it was true that the Beef Trust was feeding more people, the quality of that food was abysmal. Before being packed into cans, companies injected chemicals into it to stave off rot. And it was completely legal because at the time, there were no rules about what substances a company could or couldn't put into their food. It was a total free-for-all. Nor did manufacturers have to include a list of ingredients on the label. In fact, they could say their food contained whatever they wanted. The people who bought it were none the wiser. They had no reason to distrust what the labels said. Before long, the federal government caught on to the practices of the Beef Trust, and between 1879 and 1906, Congress reviewed almost 200 food safety bills, but practically all of them failed, thanks to lobbying from manufacturers. However, that was about to change, thanks largely to the efforts of one man. In 1883, Harvey Washington Wiley, a chemistry professor at Purdue University, was appointed to the head of the Division of Chemistry in the Department of Agriculture. Wiley had spent much of his life uncovering adulteration in the American diet. This meant that Wiley was an expert in identifying foods that had other substances artificially added. In his new role, he decided to run a series of studies testing different kinds of food for purity. His findings were disturbing, to say the least. In 1890, the department published a report concluding that almost all food on the market was adulterated in some form. For instance, Wiley found that most maple syrup sold in grocery stores didn't just contain maple as it was traditionally expected to. Instead, companies were adding glucose and sugar. This made the products cheaper, but it meant that people were consuming those other highly processed ingredients without even realizing it. Manufacturers employed all sorts of shortcuts to lower the overhead costs of mass food production including adding fillers and misrepresenting what was in their products. And yet no one could stop them. Still, Wiley pressed on. In addition to going after adulteration, the scientist turned his sights toward the effect of preservatives on the human diet. It was the first study ever to address the issue. With the help of his team, which became known as the Poison Squad, 
he compiled a group of volunteers to undergo testing for chemicals in their blood, like borax and benzoates. These chemicals were commonly added to foods. Wiley's work did indeed show that these chemicals were taking a toll on their bodies. His studies became instrumental in turning public opinion towards food reform, but that was only one part of the problem. Scientists aside, the American people were already seeing firsthand the impacts that industrial food production had on their health. In 1898, the U.S. was embroiled in the Spanish-American War. The army needed food, and fast. Instead of turning to local sources, they contracted with the companies of the Beef Trust to provide canned and refrigerated meat. And while the corporations delivered, when the meat arrived, something was off. The beef had the smell of an embalmed corpse, like it had been injected with formaldehyde. And in fact, that's exactly what had happened. The Beef Trust was using it as a food preservative. Even with these chemicals, much of the food was still rotten. Remember, The Beef Trust had no obligation to provide quality food, and this was long before the days of expiration dates. The conglomerate was just taking whatever cheap leftovers they had and shipped it out to the troops. And the soldiers had no choice but to eat the so-called embalmed beef. Before long, they fell sick by the hundreds. They showed symptoms of dysentery and diarrhea, Many died, weakened by the combination of rancid food and tropical diseases. By the time the war ended just a few months later, over 90% of the total deaths were due to disease, not combat. The embalmed beef scandal made headlines. It became abundantly clear that companies couldn't be trusted to regulate themselves. Momentum continued to build for government intervention. And it wasn't just food that came under fire pharmaceuticals, too, gained people's attention. In the drug industry, testing wasn't required. It didn't even have to do what it claimed to. To top it off, the vast majority of medicines didn't require a doctor's prescription. Anyone could come up with a formula, patent it, and advertise the product as they wanted. There were thousands of these so-called patent medicines on the market. For instance, in the late 1800s, a salesman, Clark Stanley, marketed a concoction that he said was made of rattlesnake oil. He claimed that it miraculously cured all pain, including ailments as diverse as rheumatism, toothaches, frostbite, and sore throats. Stanley's product became extremely popular. However, there was a problem. It didn't actually contain snake oil. It was just mineral oil, red pepper, and turpentine. Needless to say, the product didn't alleviate pain, but there was no mandate for drugs to be accurately labeled or even work, so people were fooled. And so the term snake oil salesman, con artist peddling their shams, was born. But his snake oil wasn't the only product claiming to be a cure-all. At the start of the 20th century, investigative journalists dove into the fray and exposed some of the drug industry's most notorious practices. In 1905, writer Samuel Hopkins Adams published a 10-part magazine feature titled The Great American Fraud. 
It took aim at the patent medicine industry, which included products like Stanley's snake oil. By 1900, over 70% of all drugs on sale were patented medicine, and many of them contained inert ingredients that did absolutely nothing. Adams exposed the severity of these patent medicines. At best, they were totally fake, and at worst, actively harmful to people's health. Their false claims to miraculously cure diseases that were, in reality, incurable, were undeniably lucrative. Each year, the country collectively spent millions of dollars on concoctions that they thought would help them stave off cancer and epilepsy. In the end, this actually prevented them from taking real effective treatments. What's worse, some of the medicines contained highly addictive substances like alcohol, morphine, opium, cocaine, and heroin, all of which were legal. But because there were no labels, people didn't know what was in the drugs they took. As a result, many people got hooked. And by the time they realized what they were taking, it was too late. To make matters worse, Many people also developed severe health problems as a result of using these patent medicines. Since the drugs didn't have to list their side effects, there was no way for users to make the connection. In fact, manufacturers weren't even required to know what these side effects were. For instance, a drug called acetanilide, used for headaches, also frequently weakened hearts. It's unknown just how many people died from taking these unregulated formulas. Adams' articles opened the public's eyes to the dangers of unregulated products. Americans began reconsidering the role of government when it came to drugs. Before long, the nation was clamoring for new laws to curb this wild west of medicines. Amidst all the suspicion, one journalist was poised to pull back the curtain on Chicago's meatpacking business, revealing just how the sausage was made. Coming up, one book changes everything Americans think about food. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. 
Get started now at bluehost.com. Now back to the story. In 19th century America, there were no regulations on food or drugs. People fell prey to false advertising, and the medicines they relied on for temporary relief often caused more harm than good. They caused their own litany of symptoms, none of which manufacturers were required to disclose. As for food, it was largely packed with fillers to make it cheaper to produce. They also used artificial colors and preservatives, some of them outright poisonous, which again, manufacturers had no obligation to disclose. People didn't have the slightest clue of what they were actually eating. By the early 20th century, several food and drug scandals woke people up to the need for change. Even President Theodore Roosevelt was on board. He'd fought in the Spanish-American War and had been one of the soldiers forced to eat the so-called embalmed beef. The experience stuck with him and made him an advocate for food reform. The final straw came in 1906, when a journalist named Upton Sinclair published a novel called The Jungle. Though it was a fictional story, the book was based on real events that the author witnessed firsthand. For seven weeks, Sinclair went undercover as a worker in Chicago's packing town, where thousands of cattle, pigs, and sheep were slaughtered every day. The book he wrote as a result captured the grotesque nature of the new meatpacking system. For instance, Sinclair talked about how companies disguised spoiled and moldy meat by canning the products. By creating a so-called meat mush for consumers, the Beef Trust was able to grind up all of the animal parts together, add in spices to mask the taste, and dye the product to whatever color it was supposed to be. It passed as food. In another scene, cattle that were injured, sick, or died during transport were surreptitiously mixed in with all the rest for processing. But at the time, this practice was illegal. So to get around those governmental obstacles, the companies did the work at night. Stunningly, sick and diseased cattle were a revelation for companies. Realizing how much they could save, they began to actively seek out diseased cattle. This livestock was cheaper and offered a new way for the beef trust to cut costs. Despite the fact that the cow's skin was often covered in boils, which exploded with pus when the butchers carved into them, the companies were undeterred. It was worth it for them to bring in the bacon. As if this wasn't enough, once the cattle were slaughtered, the carcasses were stored in rooms that were swarmed with rats. The rats defecated on the meat. Though workers tried to kill the rodents by putting out poison bread, this meant that the bread, feces, and dead rats all inevitably got mixed together with the beef. Unfortunately, even this was just the tip of the iceberg. Workers frequently cut their hands during the butchering process and were forced to keep working. A festering wound simply didn't matter. They had to keep going or they wouldn't be paid. Not only were their blood and germs mixed into the meat, they also risked infection. Sinclair even heard that in the cooking rooms, where huge vats were used to process lard, it wasn't uncommon for a worker to accidentally fall in. And by the time employees recovered their bodies, there wasn't much left. 
Though it seemed necessary to stop processing the batch, workers continued readying it for packaging, which meant human meat went out for sale along with everything else. As you can imagine, the jungle caused a huge uproar. It sold 25,000 copies in the first six weeks of its publication. People were revolted that meatpackers could get away with whatever they wanted, and Americans had no other choice but to take it. With the populace in a rage over meat, the Beef Trust struggled to contain the situation. They went after Sinclair, claiming he sensationalized the facts for money. They insisted that their doors were open to anyone who wanted to inspect their facilities. What they failed to mention, though, was that paid spies made sure tourists only saw what the companies wanted them to see. President Theodore Roosevelt had the government look into the industry to see if Sinclair was telling the truth. And soon, federal agents assigned to the case confirmed almost every single thing he described in the book. The U.S. government could no longer stand idly by. In 1906, just a few months after The Jungle came out, Roosevelt signed the Pure Food and Drug Act. It prohibited the interstate transport of food that had been adulterated or misbranded. Manufacturers were no longer allowed to add fillers to food or sell foods that were rotten or could impose health risks. And lists of ingredients, while optional, had to be accurate. The law also targeted drugs. Pharmaceutical labels could no longer be false or misleading. If a medicine contained something that was addictive, like alcohol, opiates, or narcotics, it had to be disclosed, though all of these ingredients were still legal. Compared to the laws today, the Pure Food and Drug Act might seem pretty mild, but at the time, it symbolized immense progress. It was the first law of its kind to give the federal government oversight on those issues. The body responsible for enforcing this new law was the Bureau of Chemistry under the direction of Harvey Washington Wiley, the same man who'd run the poison squad experiments. A few years later, his organization got a new name, the Food and Drug Administration. And thus, the FDA was born. In its early years, the FDA had very limited power, so limited that it couldn't really do much at all. If a manufacturer violated any of its rules, they faced up to $300 in fines and possibly a year in jail. But they often got away with a light slap on the wrist and a fine of no more than $50, a drop in the bucket compared to the massive profits they raked in. And then in 1911, the Supreme Court ruled that the Pure Food and Drug Act couldn't go after medicines that made false claims. They said it was because medical knowledge fell outside the purview of government regulation. Unsurprisingly, the decision reopened the door to fraudsters and snake oil salesmen. Congress tried to fix this oversight. It passed an amendment that made it illegal to sell drugs that manufacturers knew didn't work but the standard to prove fraud was too high, making cases nearly impossible to prosecute. And none of the laws covered cosmetics or medical devices, which were still totally unregulated. Still, the FDA was keen to help the public make better decisions. At the Chicago World's Fair in 1933, 
The agency brought attention to the dangers of quack products by highlighting some real-life examples of their harms. Their exhibition booth caused quite the stir. One newspaper reporter dubbed it the Chamber of Horrors. It showcased a variety of products that were not what they seemed. One product called Banbar claimed to cure diabetes, but in reality, it was just a concoction made of horsetail weed that may have been harmless enough, but it claimed to replace insulin injections. To put this in context, if someone with type 1 diabetes goes without insulin, they can die within a few days. So even if the ingredients in Banbar weren't actively dangerous, it prevented people from taking drugs that were keeping them alive. As a result, many people died. Another product was called Lash Lure, which consumers used to dye their eyelashes and brows. But while it may have given users a smoldering gaze, it also caused severe disfigurement and blindness. Then there was the Diana Ideal Wound Supporter, a contraceptive. Patients could place the device in the vagina to create a barrier, but if inserted incorrectly, it could puncture the uterus, causing internal bleeding and possibly death. You get the picture. And so did everyone who viewed the booth. It proved that more regulations were needed. But as it turned out, the FDA wouldn't have to continue staging gruesome displays. Four years later, a drug manufacturer made that point for them. In 1937, the S.E. Massengill Company introduced a new liquid form of the drug sulfanilamide. As a powder, sulfanilamide was a powerful antibacterial commonly used on the battlefields during World War I to prevent infection. So the Massengill Company innovated on the drug and produced a liquid version to make the chemical easier to take. They assumed that because the powder was safe, the liquid would be too, so they never tested the drug for toxicity. Hardly a month later, six people in Tulsa, Oklahoma died after ingesting the product. When the Massengill Company learned about the fatalities, they sent out over a thousand telegrams to salesmen, pharmacists, and doctors telling them to pull the drug from shelves, though they didn't say why. The FDA soon got wind of it and started investigating. Just a few days later, they confirmed at least nine deaths from the drug. By the time all of the drug was recalled, 107 people had died. Many of them were children. An investigation later showed that the Massengill Company had tested the product for taste, consistency, and appearance, but they had failed to make the connection that diethylene glycol, which was used to suspend the active drug, was chemically related to antifreeze. Despite the egregious negligence, the FDA's hands were tied by the law. They couldn't prove that the Massengill Company had knowingly committed fraud, and there were no rules that required testing or approval before a drug went on the market. All they could do was get the manufacturer on a technicality. They referred to their product as an elixir, which meant it was supposed to contain alcohol. Since the formula didn't, they got charged a fine. The owner of the enterprise refused to admit guilt in the tragedy, calling it unforeseeable. Meanwhile, the chemist who created the drug died by suicide. Outcry for even more government intervention only grew after the sulfanilamide scandal. 
The FDA had all the public opinion on its side. They were seen as crusaders for justice. There were even movies made about the agency, with titles like G-Men of Science. And the federal government took advantage of this widespread public support. In 1938, Congress passed the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. It allowed the FDA to regulate medical devices and cosmetics, and it required that new drugs get approval before they went on sale. This was a huge deal. Now, the country didn't have to wait for a disaster to learn about a drug's dangers. Meanwhile, flooding the market with fake products became much more difficult. The new law also standardized labels and required factory inspections. It made it easier for the FDA to go after manufacturers who misbranded their drugs. Products couldn't claim to outright cure ailments unless they were scientifically proven to do so. All of this was part of a major shift in how American society thought about drugs. Before this bill and its subsequent amendments, all medicines, excluding narcotics, didn't require prescription. Manufacturers marketed directly to laypeople who knew nothing about science. But after the new law passed, almost all new drugs had to be acquired through a physician. Things were looking up by the mid-20th century. The government had closed most of the remaining loopholes and set up a new system for protecting its citizens against fraudulent products. It seemed like nothing could go wrong. Until another tragedy showed that there was still work to be done. Coming up, other countries experience strange side effects. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Now back to the story. By the 1950s, the FDA was in full swing. For decades, the U.S. government had been enacting new laws to increase their oversight on various industries. Now, they could regulate foods, drugs, cosmetics, and medical devices that might be harmful to the American public. But that wasn't the case abroad. In 1953, Swiss and German drug companies found a powerful sedative that was effective at treating nausea and morning sickness. Called thalidomide, the drug was particularly useful during pregnancy. With no apparent severe side effects, in 1957, the company that owned it started marketing the drug to pregnant women in Germany, Britain, Australia, and Canada. Naturally, the company was also keen to sell their products in the U.S., but the FDA mandated a longer application and approval process. So the company applied in 1960, and an inspector named Dr. Francis Oldham Kelsey was tasked with evaluating the drug. 
Dr. Kelsey didn't feel comfortable with the initial test that the manufacturer had done on thalidomide. She wanted to conduct more research to prove that it was safe. So rather than approve thalidomide's application, she decided to wait for about a year to get more information. In the meantime, something strange was happening in the rest of the English-speaking world. In Australia, a gynecologist noted that some of his patients' babies had severe limb deformities, and there were similar reports coming out of Great Britain. Those countries also reportedly saw a sharp uptick in the number of stillbirths and miscarriages. As it turned out, all of the mothers had taken thalidomide while pregnant. Though the drug manufacturer had tested for negative side effects on individuals, it wasn't required to test for the potential impact on fetuses, even though the product was specifically used as an anti-nausea for pregnant women. By 1961, it was clear that thalidomide caused congenital disorders. Thankfully, it had never been approved for use in the United States. Thanks to Dr. Kelsey's caution, many expectant mothers avoided taking the drug. In 1962, John F. Kennedy gave her the President's Award for Distinguished Federal Civilian Service. We should point out, though, that even the FDA didn't require tests on fetuses at the time. It might have been possible that the agency would have missed that specific issue had it been approved. If anything, while the thalidomide crisis showed the agency's milestones, their process certainly wasn't foolproof. And despite the new regulations, fake products still managed to sneak onto the market. In 1961, the FDA teamed up with the American Medical Association to hold a Congress on medical quackery. Their goal was to distinguish between drugs that scientifically worked from those that didn't. Many of the products discussed promised to treat diseases that had no cure, like cancer. They included healing wands made of crystals. For the less spiritually minded, there were so-called treatment machines that looked like the kind of equipment used in hospitals, but were really just knobs and dials that did nothing. The conference also took aim at cosmetics that claimed to contain a quote-unquote miracle ingredient for eternal youth. But going after such products was becoming more difficult. Companies were getting savvier. They used language in their ads that implied the benefits of the product rather than assert them outright. That way, they weren't technically breaking any rules. The FDA and the AMA wanted a new law that would force manufacturers to provide proof that their drugs actually did what they claimed. So Congress rolled up its sleeves and wrote another bill. In 1962, President Kennedy signed the Kefauver-Harris Amendments. Now, drugs had to be both safe and effective before getting FDA approval. And for the first time ever, made it a requirement to report all of a drug's possible side effects. Collectively, the bill created guardrails that the pharmaceutical industry had to abide by and that consumers could finally take real comfort in. From the early 1900s to the 1960s, the food and drug landscape went from total lawlessness to being controlled and based on scientific testing. Today, we have lots of mechanisms in place to make sure that dangerous products don't make it onto the market. As a result, we assume that the things we put into our bodies are safe. However, 
In the 1970s, American society experienced a food revolution, or really, a devolution. Heavily processed foods entered our grocery stores. Manufacturers churned out snacks that were cheap to produce and lasted on shelves for a long time. The trade-off was, though, that these items contained added preservatives, flavors, and other additives, including extra sugars, oils, fat, and salt. Americans ate it up, literally. Processed foods have basically become the core of the national diet. It's estimated that about 61% of our average caloric intake comes from foods considered highly processed. It's exactly the kind of adulteration that the founders of the FDA, like Wiley, fought against 140 years ago. But today, the agency may have lapsed in its duty. Most of these processed foods contain the same key ingredient, high fructose corn syrup. In 1983, the corn refining industry submitted a petition to the FDA to consider high fructose corn syrup a safe food. The FDA approved it, but to many, it seemed that it was without considering the long-term impacts it might have on people's health. Over the next decades, cases of obesity, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and a host of other diseases skyrocketed. It's become increasingly clear to scientists that these conditions are tied to people's diets. For instance, a 2012 study found that rates of diabetes were 20% higher in countries that consumed high-fructose corn syrup compared with countries that didn't, even when the overall amount of sugar and calories eaten remained the same. Yet, according to the FDA, the ingredients in processed foods are technically safe. They've avoided confronting the reality of what happens when high-fructose corn syrup is in practically everything Americans eat. And that's just considering the food industry. If we pivot back to Big Pharma, things are equally worrisome on the regulatory front. In 1995, the FDA approved a new drug that was touted as an effective painkiller. It was called OxyContin. Not only was it extremely effective, it was addictive too. But because doctors were prescribing it, Patients assumed it was safe. It was anything but. The approval of OxyContin kicked off the opioid epidemic. Since the start of the 21st century, nearly 500,000 people have died from opioid overdoses. Some have accused the FDA of being asleep on the job, that they are complicit in allowing these health crises to unfold. And it opens up a big question. Are there reasons not to trust the FDA? Next time, we'll consider three conspiracy theories that address whether the FDA is really doing all that it can to protect Americans. Like conspiracy theory number one, the FDA is hiding information about additives in foods that are causing a nationwide health crisis. And conspiracy theory number two, the FDA covers up scientific misconduct. And finally, conspiracy theory number three, the FDA is funded by Big Pharma. For most of its history, the FDA has been the good guy. It requires rigorous testing for drugs and guarantees our rights as consumers to know what's in the products we consume. But time can dull even the best of intentions. So perhaps the FDA still could do more to ensure that Americans aren't poisoning themselves. 
Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For more information on the FDA, amongst the many sources we used, we found How Chemists Pushed for Consumer Protection by John P. Swan extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kotovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Kirsten Liu, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Anya Barely, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.